Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We have been in a series called Great New Testament Texts. They're all familiar texts, probably to most of us, unless you're a new believer. But we're looking at some of the texts in the New Testament that often we memorize because they capture truths that are so fundamental in the Christian life. We've been doing that for a number of weeks, and we will continue to right up until Easter. And today, we're looking at the first three verses of John chapter 14. And I've entitled my message, Truth for Troubled Hearts. Truth for Troubled Hearts. You know, in the medical world, they differentiate between acute stress and chronic stress. I know you've heard those words, acute stress and chronic stress. They describe acute stress as something that's relatively minor and certainly passing, like a, a fender bender accident. Or maybe you get in an argument with your spouse, and I can't imagine that happening to anyone in this crowd, but uh, that's acute stress. Or they even put in the category of having to deliver a speech in public. They call that acute stress. It causes some people real stress. So now you know why I have these ticks, you know, because I, I do it every week. That's acute stress. And we're made to handle acute stress. God has designed it. As a matter of fact, it can even make us better as people. But chronic stress is something different. Chronic stress breaks us down when we live with chronic stress. Some examples of chronic stress would be living in an abusive relationship for years or the pressure of overwhelming debt and no way out of that or going through a bitter and lengthy divorce with its consequences. Chronic stress can cause a variety of both physical and emotional problems, such as headaches, they say, high blood pressure, heart problems, stomach issues, insomnia, irritability, and even autoimmune problems. So we recognize that the medical community tells us chronic stress is not good for us. It's not the way we should go through life. Now, certainly God doesn't expect us to live in this world completely devoid of stress or completely devoid of heartache or worry or pressure. He knows we can handle that. He knows that living in a fallen world, that's the world that we're living in, a broken world. But he tells us in this passage of scripture, living in this broken world, we're not to have a troubled heart. Matter of fact, that's the words that he uses. We're not to have a troubled heart in a very tumultuous world. We can have peace, a peaceful heart in a troubled world. The antidote to stress, anxiety, confusion, worry is faith in God. And we're going to get to that. It's faith in God, a resolute trust that Jesus is in control. Even at the darkest hour of Jesus's life, he is still in control when he's getting ready to be crucified. Jesus is in control. And the second thought that we'll see is that he is preparing a place, the very best outcome for his followers. That's the antidote for stress. Now, without a, an awareness of the context of verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 14, I don't think we would appreciate the comfort that's offered 
in this passage of scripture. If we didn't understand the, the time frame that Jesus is going to the cross the very next day, that night he's going to be delivered up to the Jews and to the Romans. Without understanding the time frame and the disturbing comments that Jesus makes to his own disciples, I think this verse doesn't have its full impact. We don't understand and appreciate the full impact of his comforting words to us in chapter 14. The disciples had good reason to be troubled. They did. They had good reason to be upset. Jesus had just told them that one of them was going to be a traitor and turn him over to the Jews and the Romans. One of them was a traitor. He just told them that. All of them would deny him and that he would be leaving them that night. So you could see they had good reason to worry, to be upset, to be anxious about what was going on. Obviously, they were upset and worried about the future. So what Jesus told his disciples, though, is not just applicable to them. It's wonderfully applicable to all of us because all of us have stresses, worries, anxieties, frustrations, doubts, as these disciples did. I've taken verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 14, truth for troubled hearts, and dividing them into two thoughts that I see here. Let's reread the text. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. The first thing I want you to note is in verse 1. We have a loving Savior who is caring for us. The disciples didn't quite get that. They would. But they didn't quite get it at the moment. They had a loving Savior who is caring for them, who is caring for us. The hearts of the disciples were filled with a medley of emotions, most of them dark emotions, we would say. They were sad because of the gloomy prospect of Christ's departure. They'd been living with him for three to three and a half years. So they were sad at the gloomy prospect of Christ's departure. They were ashamed of their own demonstration of selfishness and pride. Remember, they had been arguing just before this about who's going to be first in the kingdom when the kingdom comes. Or who's going to be first in the kingdom? They were ashamed, I think, of their own demonstration of selfishness and pride. They were perplexed at the prediction that one of them would betray their master. How could any of them do that? They were perplexed about that. They were broken, understanding that they all would deny him, down to the last disciple. And they were questioning their faith. They were doubting their faith because the Messiah, who they thought was going to bring in the kingdom, was going to be crucified. He was going to die, and he was going to be gone. He told them that. So they had a whole medley, a whole mix, a whole confluence of, of emotions that were going through their heart and their mind, and they were troubled. That's why he says to them in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Matter of fact, the exhortation is really better translated this way, stop letting your hearts be troubled any longer. That's precisely what Jesus is saying to them. He knew that they were troubled. He says, stop it. 
Stop letting your hearts be troubled any longer. And here's the reason why, he goes on to tell them. This exhortation is based upon Christ's compassionate, selfless character. That he loved them and he was not going to allow them to fail, to fall. So he promises to continue to be with them. He's telling them that he has to go away. He tells them that a little bit later in this chapter, that he has to go away so the Holy Spirit can come. And the Holy Spirit is going to dwell within each of them, the Holy Spirit of God. Now, remember, Jesus is saying to them, don't be troubled. Stop being troubled about the future. And yet Jesus is being troubled. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 38 says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane. John chapter 13, verse 21, it says, Jesus was troubled and greatly concerned, not because of the pain that he was going to experience in a few hours of being on the cross, not because he was facing necessarily the Romans and the Jewish leadership that was turning on him or his disciples forsaking him. He was troubled because he was going to experience for the first time in all of eternity that the Father's fellowship with him would be broken. That there would be a, a bifurcation between the Father and the Son for the first time in all of eternity's history. And he was troubled. So do you see here is Jesus not able to really fully comprehend what he was going to experience because he's never done it before, but he's not so much worried about himself. He's worried about his disciples. His compassion comes through. His loving concern for them comes through when he says, let not your hearts be troubled. The agonizing shepherd who is facing the torture of the cross now comforts his own disciples. And this is a command. By the way, it's an imperative an imperative, it's a command. It's much more than just the trite cliches that we often hear from people. Like, don't worry, everything's going to work out. Or the island mentality, they call it. Don't worry, be happy. Even the song says that. Don't worry, be happy. It's a whole lot more than those kind of trite cliches because Jesus' words are established on the solid ground of his own omniscience. He knew everything that was going to come to pass. He's going to reveal a little bit of that to them in the next two verses. But his omniscience tells them the Holy Spirit is coming to dwell within them and to empower them and that he is going to go away and he is going to prepare a place for them. His omniscience is grounded in his statement that you don't have to be worried. You don't have to be fretful. You don't have to be anxious because I know what's coming. And by the way, we don't know what's coming. None of us knows what lies beyond tomorrow. We don't know. But we can know the one who does know. And we can rest in him. And that's really what he's telling the disciples. That's really what he's telling us. I know tomorrow. I am in control of tomorrow. You can rest in me. You don't have to be all troubled about it. You don't have to be all anxious about it. I know you don't know, but I do know. As his followers, we must plant our trust in an omnipotent God, a loving Savior, even when we don't understand what he is doing, because we won't. We don't always understand what God is doing. Sometimes it looks like evil has come about, but God uses it for good, as in the story of Joseph. 
Just as these men firmly believed in God, and notice what he says, as you believe in God, there's no questioning. These were devout Jews, even before they met Christ. These men believed in God. They were monotheists. They believed in Jehovah God. They went to the synagogue. So he says, just as you have always believed in God, and he's been trying to help them cross this bridge, you can believe in me also. I am God, is what he's telling them. Matter of fact, in verse 6, the last verse that, that we read a moment ago in the scripture reading, he said, I am. It's one of his great I am New Testament statements. I am. That's one of the Old Testament names for God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Over and over, Jesus has been telling his disciples and all those that would listen to him that he is God. They couldn't get their mind around that. They pictured God in heaven. God is a spirit. And here's Jesus as a man. They didn't understand that. Jesus is saying to them, just as you have believed in God, his person, his work, his care for for them as, as Jews, now they must exercise the same faith, the same trust in Jesus Christ. And that was a long bridge for them to get over. They got over it, but they had a hard time doing it. That was a hard river for them to cross, but they crossed it. He's saying, just as you've believed in God, now you have to believe in me. What I've been telling you is I am God incarnate. I am God in the flesh. Jesus, again here, as he's done many times, is equating himself with God. He is is saying, I am God. Believe in me. The disciples didn't have the benefit that we have of a completed New Testament revelation. They didn't understand the Trinity. Maybe they'd seen a couple of glimpses, maybe at the baptism of Christ. They heard the voice from heaven. They saw the Spirit descending upon him as he began his public ministry. Maybe when Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration, again they hear the voice of God saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So maybe they saw little glimpses, but they didn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together. They didn't understand the Trinity. They didn't have the completed revelation. They didn't understand that there are three co-equal persons in the Godhead. They did shortly thereafter. Of course, actually, the the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't even hammered out fully until later in subsequent years in various councils. But later in this chapter, Jesus explains that he must depart. So the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit of God, could come and indwell them. They're going to get it. They're going to understand it. But he's saying, listen, you don't have to be troubled. You don't have to be worried. You don't have to be anxious. There's no reason to fret. I am God, and I'm going to be with you. The Holy Spirit's going to be with you. And even though you don't know what tomorrow brings, I know you can rest in me. You can trust in me. That's what he's telling them. We can avoid troubled hearts because we have a loving Savior who is caring for us even right now. Second, we have a heavenly home that is waiting for us. This is a second part of what Jesus is telling them, giving them comfort. They don't know how long they're going to live. They don't know what they're going to face. But he tells them in verses 2 and 3, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have certainly informed you or told you. I go to continue 
building on my father's house. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We can trust because he is preparing a place for us. We have a heavenly home that is waiting for us. And it's good for us to think about that. In our busy life, in our focus in this world, and of course, our focus is this world. This is where we live. We really don't think much about heaven, and we probably should, because we're going to spend a long time there. And the Bible tells us about heaven. You've heard me talk a little bit about the new heavens and the new earth. We finished a series on eschatology, about the new heavens and the new earth, where God creates the new heaven and the new earth, not just the new earth, but a new heaven as well. Why? Because it was tainted by Satan's sin. Earth was tainted by Adam and Eve's sin. The fall came, so God has to create the new earth, but he has to create all new heavens. And he gives us little glimpses of it, little glimpses of the new Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven, which is hovering over the new earth. And the new earth has no seas, it has no ocean, there's no need of them. The land on earth is at least 70% more than it is now. And the New Jerusalem, we're told, is a 1,500-mile cube, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high. That would be from the Appalachian Mountains to the West Coast, from Canada to Mexico. That's over 200 million square miles, and that's the first floor. If every floor was 12 stories high, most of the time we think of a 10-story ceiling, every story was 12 feet high, there would be over 600,000 stories high. Don't take the elevator. It'll take you a while. And that's just the capital city. We have access to all of the earth. So we have the best of city life in the New Jerusalem and the best of country life in the new world that's created. And we're told that we have a mansion there. That's what it says here. That we have an abode there. So Jesus is comforting his disciples about this coming separation. And he's telling them, yes, I'm going to leave you. Yes, there is a coming separation. But he's comforting them by promising them a wonderful, glorious reunion someday. And we should be looking forward to that reunion in heaven. Where Jesus is going to dwell, there will be a place for them also, he tells them. Yes, I'm going to leave you. But where I am, there you may be also. I'm not leaving you behind. I'm coming back for you. That where I am, there you may be also. In fact, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension would make all of that possible. They didn't understand what was coming in the next 24 hours, but what was coming in the next 24 hours would make all of that possible because he purchases their redemption. Notice he says here in verse 2, in my father's house. It's kind of a homey way that Jesus describes it. Most of you know that in the Jewish culture, that when a son was betrothed to a woman and they waited and got married, that while the betrothal period was going on, he was building an addition, at least a bedroom onto his father's house. And then he would go and get his bride and bring her to his father's house. Jesus is using language that they're really quite familiar with. And it really almost became, a, over a period of time, if you had, certainly if you had many sons, it would almost be like a compound. They got the concept. 
So he says, in my Father's house, it's just a homey way of describing heaven. And heaven, Jesus spoke with complete confidence about heaven. Heaven is not an idea. Heaven is a place. It is a literal place. It is a beautiful place. And is it a place that we enter into if we have a reservation? You don't just die and go to heaven. I've said it before. You can't get a table in a Michelin five-star rated restaurant without a reservation. You can't just show up. You can't go to DIA and say, I want to fly to Miami and just show up. You have to have a reservation. You have to have a seat assignment. You can't get a room in a vacation resort, some exotic place, St. Thomas or whatever it might be, without a reservation. You can't just show up. Why do people think that they're going to go to heaven if they don't have a reservation? The most exclusive place in the universe. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to my Father's house except through me. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the way. He is the means in which we get to heaven. Jesus spoke with complete confidence, assuring these disciples that he is going to heaven. And there was plenty of room for all of God's children there. He is preparing a place. He says here, in my father's house are many mansions. You've heard that. The word mansions is a transliteration from the Latin Vulgate. Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, which became the Bible of Christendom for over a thousand years. We think of the King James being the Bible for the last 400 years. For many of us, many of you are carrying maybe a new King James, which is the fifth translation or the fifth revision of the King James Bible. But there's the NIV and many others. But the King James Bible and its annotations and, and various derivatives have been around for 400 years. The Latin Vulgate was around for over a thousand years. That was the Bible of the church for most of Christendom. Jerome translated it into Latin and he took the word there and it was mansions. And then when they translated the English Bible, they just transliterated it. Well, when we think of mansions, I, I think most of us are thinking the Hearst Mansion or the Vanderbilt Mansion in North Carolina or, or something like that. We're thinking of this giant palatial place. But the Greek word there, mansions, is monet. Matter of fact, later in this chapter, turn with me to verse 23. Because that same word is used again. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home. There's the word Monet, same as found in verse two, mansion. We will make our home with him. Now, I'm not trying to pop your bubble or disappoint you because nobody's going to be disappointed when we get to heaven. We're going to get there and say, man, I thought the food was going to be better, you know? I saw a little bit of trash on the street of gold over there. Who's doing the upkeep around here? You know, we're not going to be disappointed in heaven. We're going to go around slack-jawed for a while at least. We're going to eyes like saucers, mouth wide open, praising God. But we're going to be amazed at heaven. No one is going to be disappointed in heaven. But the mansion idea here is unfortunately probably 
because of certain songs and maybe how the word is used in the English language, we have a different idea. But the word is home. I'm preparing a home for you. The word means dwelling place. The word means abode. Sometimes it's even translated rooms. I'm preparing room for you, an abode for you, a home for you. The Bible doesn't teach that we're going to live in some sprawling palatial estate on our own private compound. We're not going to live in our own palatial estate on some walled compound. That's not the picture. It's quite the opposite of that, actually where we're separated from all the saints and every once in a while we raise a flag or out on the turret we wave to some other heavenly saint. Hey, see ya. Good to see you, bud. That's not the picture of heaven at all. Some compound, some palatial estate where we're all to ourselves. Quite the opposite. The idea we find in Scripture is that even though we have our own abode, we will be living in close proximity to other glorified saints. Picture in your mind. One big, happy family reunion without the caricatures that we often think of when we think of family reunions, without Weird Harold or whoever there, okay? Because we're all redeemed, we're all glorified. It's just one big, happy family reunion in close proximity. So we have our own abode, but we're with all the other glorified heavenly saints and we're worshiping God and we're exploring, we're learning and we're enjoying ourselves throughout eternity because of what Christ has done. He's reminding them, he's assuring them, he's comforting them that they don't have to be troubled. Every one of these disciples, except for John, is going to be killed for their faith. They're going to be martyrs for the cause. They didn't know that yet. They hadn't experienced that yet. And I'm sure there's going to be some acute stress when that comes about. But he is reminding them that yes, he is going to be with them. The Holy Spirit's going to be with them because he lovingly cares for them. But they also have a heavenly home waiting for them where they will rejoin their master. They'll be reunited to their Savior and Lord, the shepherd of their lives. Jesus gives us assurance. And he says, if this was not so, I would have informed you. I'm not misleading you. I'm not leading you on about something. He says, if it were not exactly as I've described it, I would have informed you. We're to take comfort in God's abiding presence with us here and that he is preparing a permanent home for us up there. We've got his presence here. We've got a home waiting for us up there. That's how he comforts these disciples. That's how he comforts us. He assures us. Love prepares a welcome. Jesus loves these disciples. He's preparing a place for them. He's preparing a welcome for them. Love prepares a welcome. With love, expectant parents prepare a room for their coming baby. With love, a wife prepares herself for her soldier husband who returns from combat. A hostess prepares for her awaited guests. And Jesus prepares a place for his people because he loves them and he anticipates their arrival in heaven. Jesus is anticipating your arrival in heaven. 
He's waiting for you to get there. You don't have to dread going there. If you know him, you can look forward to heaven. You can be assured of whatever you go through in this life. Health problems, financial reversals, personal heartaches, broken relationships, whatever it is that he is going to go with you through these things and you don't have to be troubled. And he's waiting at the end of the line, welcoming you, awaiting you to come and join him in the place that he has prepared perfectly for you. It's suited for your needs, suited to your desires. Jesus promised to come again for his disciples. This is not referring to his resurrection. It's going to happen in three days. It's not referring to the Holy Spirit's coming to indwell them. It's referring to the fact that he is going to come and take them. It's an allusion to the fact that he is going to come at the end of the age and take all the saints to heaven. He's going to come and return for all believers that are alive at that time and all believers ultimately to be taken to heaven. That's what he's referring to. The entire focus of heaven is being united with Jesus. Heaven is not heaven because of streets of gold or pearly gates or the presence of the angels or the absence of sickness, sin, or death or glorified bodies or the wonderful experiences that we will have throughout eternity of learning, growing, exploring. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. That's why heaven is heaven. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. I close with this thought. It is a comfort to know that Jesus is preparing a place for us. That's why he gave us this verse, to give us comfort. He's preparing a place for us. It is a comfort to know that Jesus is preparing a place for us. It is instructive to know that he is preparing us for that place. He's getting you ready. He's getting me ready for that place. That flesh and blood can't enter into that a non-glorified body or sinful body, sinful soul can't enter into. He's preparing us as much for that place as he's preparing that place for us. So we need to get in line. We need to step up to the sanctification process. We need to say, Jesus, I sign on the bottom line. Do in me what needs to be done. I will give up what I need to give up. I will suffer what I need to suffer. I will grow in the areas I need to grow. I want to become the kind of person that is welcomed into heaven. So continue your work in me as I surrender to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have such wonderful, beautiful, anticipated truths in the scriptures. I has not seen, nor has mine entered into what God has prepared for them who love him, the scriptures say. We can't, even with our best imagination and taking the scriptures as our glasses, as our lenses, we really can't quite see and imagine all that you have prepared for us. But we know and we trust, we believe, we have the faith to understand that you're with us now. Whatever troubles we go through, whatever heartaches we experience, whatever perplexity that floods our soul, you're there with us and you don't want us to be troubled. And we just look forward to the day and we rest in 
the fact that you're preparing a place for us. No matter how bad it gets sometimes, we know that heaven's our home because Jesus is our Savior. And so we rest in that. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that today they would allow us to help them settle this important question. That they would have full assurance about their salvation. Their trust would be in Jesus Christ and him alone. Not in their good works, not in their philanthropy, not even in a church, but in Christ's finished work on the cross. That would be our prayer. Lord, help us to live, live, maybe we would say carefree. We know we, we're always going to have cares, but, but carefree because you're sovereign and you're in control for those of us who are believers. You bring into our lives only what is in our own best interest, our spiritual growth. So help us to live resting in you and knowing that when this life is over, we will never be separated from your presence that you're preparing a home for us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.